are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. You gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants to hear your Hello and welcome to She Roars, a podcast about change and the women who drive it forward, before, during, and after their time here on the Princeton campus. My name is Margaret Koval. I'm a graduate alumna from 1983, and my guest today is Stephanie Mash Sykes, class of 2004. Stephanie majored in politics here at Princeton, which is my department. She earned a law degree from Duke, worked for the mayor's office in Sacramento, California, and a few years ago relocated to Washington, D.C. to become the executive director of the African American Mayors Association. That job gives her a broad view of the issues facing American cities in general and their black populations in particular. Stephanie, thank you very, very much for making time for us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be back for my 15th reunion ah. and here chatting with you as well. Great. I'm really struck. I was in the politics department too. So I was really struck that you moved quickly into city politics when you left Princeton here, which isn't necessarily a well-worn path. And I, I, I was curious what made you do that? Uh, what avenues were there for you? How, how did that come to happen? I think I always just had a passion for social justice and um, social impact issues. You know, in high school, I was an NAACP. And so when I came to Princeton, I was still looking for something to connect me to that advocacy, grassroots background I had from an early age. Mm-hmm. And I found that in a politics class. I th- believe the professor was uh, Beth Jamison. She was a lecturer here. Mm-hmm. And we talked about a variety of social issues from equality, you know, um, marriage, needle exchange, it was reparations. It was a very mm-hmm. uh, robust course um, discussions. Um, and it really Was it an urban politics course, per it was, se? I think it was a politics class. Mm-hmm. It was a politics lecture. And we were talking about current events. And mm-hmm. I was just really inspired to continue in that path. And uh, from that class, there was something called the Princeton Justice Project. It was launched. And the students were really trained to do advocacy work. Mm-hmm. And um, so when I was looking for my junior summer, I wanted to really be connected to that work. And just started looking on my own. Mm-hmm. And I think the great thing about Princeton is that they provided um, stipends. Uh-huh. I mean, my parents were middle class. They didn't have money to like put me up somewhere, and I wasn't going to get paid. <laughs> so right. uh, that double whammy of not getting paid and also not having the resources to you know live and room and board for the summer, I found myself in the Philadelphia mayor's office. And that sort of just framed my experience and interest in seeing action where it happens, rubber meets the road is what everyone says in city government yeah. and just local news and just being there with uh, folks that make decisions that that policy is enacted almost immediately. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. So you're not, well, I mean, I'm sure there's tons and tons of, of um, uh, horse trading in, in city politics as there is at the national level, but um, on some level, it's a little bit more streamlined. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you're accountable in a way that maybe your congressman might not be. Everyone knows who their mayor is. Mm-hmm. You know, you might not know who your senator is, let alone your state representatives tend to not have as much um, direct conversation with their communities in the way that a mayor does. They're yeah. cutting the ribbons. They are responsible, whether they actually are, you know, by charter responsible for schools or the snow. Um, everyone thinks they are. Yeah. <laughs> and so they yeah. have to be accountable. And I just found that work to be exciting. So I, you know, went to law school. I did the big law thing, pay off the loans, mm-hmm. and found myself back working for a mayor out 
Southern California and who launched the organization and I co-founded with him um, the African American Mayors Association right. where I now work. Yeah. yeah. And and his name was? Uh, Mayor Kevin Johnson. Yes, indeed. I knew that, but yeah. I figured I should let you give him a call. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> now that I think about it, it's kind of obvious, but I hadn't thought it about it much before, that, that city politics is kind of a uniquely um, important platform and pipeline for African-American leaders in the United States. I know the first African-American mayor was, was, was 50 years ago, only 50 years ago, I would say, but I suppose in some ways of counting that's a long time ago. Um, but since then, there's been so many, so many really big uh, luminaries, and I'm from Chicago. I'm thinking of Harold Washington, Washington right. and then I moved to Los Angeles, Tom Bradley, Bradley yeah. and on and on it goes. And I, I just uh, wonder if there's anything unique about city politics uh, that makes it more accessible and more important for African Americans to take leadership roles there. If you have thoughts, I know you're not an urban sociologist, sure. but I just, you know, you've been there. Yeah, I think it's about coalition building and it's about people that are on the streets. Again, they're visible, it's grassroots. Mm -hmm. And also, if you think historically, um, mayoral campaigns don't cost as much as a congressional campaign and uh -huh, a Senate campaign. Sure. And so you can get those grassroots donations and that I think is, you know, historically how we've seen, um, you know, mayors in the 70s have this, you know, renaissance of black mayors and Maynard Jackson and yeah. um, being able to reach across the aisle. I mean, the question I was getting over the last two years is we don't have a black mayor of New York anymore. We, There might not be a black mayor in Atlanta. I mean, is it the end of black mayors? These were real headlines. Right. And it, you know, it was so interesting to me is because we were coming off of a moment I know it sounds like it's or feels like it was eons ago where we had a black president yeah we're not a majority black country right yeah. and so you know we see these trends of gentrification and a reurbanization and what does that mean for you know the new wave and new crop of black mayors and how is that connected historically and I think some of the things are the same they still have to build coalitions the coalitions may look different now mm -hmm. because of gentrification and you know job opportunities that are now in the cities but they still have to reach across the aisle. Some city councils are at large, they're bipartisan elections. And so just that fundamental, you know, grassroots type of voter engagement mm -hmm. and constituent engagement, which is just the common language and practice of mayors. Yeah. Um, and that's how we see, you know, black mayors still thriving. That's interesting. Yeah. So I want to unpick some of the things that you just mentioned, because sure. there's big demographic trends sure. at play in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the reasons, again, I grew up in Chicago, and mm -hmm. one of the reasons Chicago had such a strong black political um, uh, constituency and movement, I think, was part of the Great Migration, right? People, right. people move from the South up to Chicago. Um, and the whites fled, whites moved out. Mm -hmm. So Chicago was, had, a, had a really strong black population. Uh, that's changing, yeah? Whites are moving back in, blacks are often moving out, as, I, mm -hmm. as I'm reading, right. out of these northern cities. So yeah. there's this n n yeah. a, a huge new migration. Yeah. I'm wondering if you feel that on the ground how, how, or, or, or in your organization, how you're seeing sure. change amongst the mayors and how they lead their cities? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, what one thing that has happened over the last 10 years or so is technology, right? And so what is going to be the next Silicon Valley? Well, my answer is probably there won't be a next Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. but where can a city, you know, really develop an inclusive tech ecosystem? Mm -hmm. And we see that in Atlanta. And that is just a more attractive place for anyone to live, actually, you know, the affordable living, uh -huh. and it's a more diverse community. And so you see some of these companies, and also just with telework opportunities, I know Tulsa just encouraged people, like they give them a tax break if you work remotely 
remotely and then move to Tulsa. And huh. so there's all these, you know, interesting ways that cities are, you know, engaging, you know, newer technologists to come to their communities. And so I think that's part of it. Uh-huh. Um, I think that, you know, part of the migration, the part of migration actually back to the South. Right. And I think there's another sub conversation that even when we talk about urbanization, who are we really talking about? Because Black people can be gentrifiers, right? Like yeah. if you're upper middle class and you're bringing your dog and you're displacing, <laughs> you know, the local bodega because you uh-huh. go to Whole Foods too, what is your part, you know, for upward mobile, you know, African-Americans, um, upwardly mobile African-Americans, what is their role also in reshaping the language and conversation in the city and where do they fall in the political spectrum? Mm-hmm. And I think that's changing as well. Mm-hmm. Well, say a little bit more about that. You mean sure. it, 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 when you say blacks can be gentrification, gentrifiers, of course that's mm-hmm. true. So you mean pushing out lower income African-Americans from their communities. Right. Yeah. There's a cultural component. Mm-hmm. So over the last couple of weeks, I think there was either regional or national news around um, in Washington, D.C., where I am. Mm -hmm. There's something called go-go music. It's this historic, uh, really local music that's all these drums and just Mm -hmm. really a D.C. flavor. Well, Mm -hmm. there was a T-Mobile store that used to play Mm go-go, and all of a sudden you have a new demographic around this T-Mobile store. And so there were all these complaints about the music. And so... They asked the store to stop playing or playing at lower volumes, and it just became this whole conversation about who is D.C., right? Mm -hmm. You even had the T-Mobile CEO weighing in, like tweeting, like, we support go-go music too. Um, He got in the conversation maybe more for just, you know, publicity, but it made an interesting national, you know, conversation. And um, the mayor now just, I think last week was like D.C. Natives Mm -hmm. week. So Mm -hmm. it's we're authentically from here. What does that mean? Um, we're going to still preserve our culture. So there's the cultural argument, but there's also an affordability argument. And what is the workforce housing? Not just low-income housing, but where, where are the teachers going to work? Where are the firemen going to work when the entry-level property is $500,000? And so, you know, what is the responsibility for someone like myself, two professionals in our household? We want our property to go up. Of course. But what does that yeah. mean? Are mm-hmm. we part of the, you know, speculating in an area where Amazon's going to come and my house is going to go up, but what about the community around me? Mm-hmm. What happens when that you know that change occurs, and and how are we helpful and how are we part of the problem as well? So I think you know it's the culturals also as well as the economic argument. Yeah, that's that's uh, I, I find that really interesting because DC has changed a lot. Yeah, absolutely. It's another city I, I've lived in over my <laughs> years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. such a vagabond, but yeah, uh, it's changed a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I back to your career, if sure. I can. Sure. Did you have any mentors or role models that helped you kind of carve a path in municipal government? Yeah, I mean, I think I collected them on the way. So I mentioned Princeton and being trained for advocacy. So actually, backing up, I actually worked in New Jersey. Like legislature Mm -hmm. for two years before law school and some of the folks that were just you know senior staffers are now state senators and judges and I still feel like there's a connectivity there I reach out to them and their mentors and friends and also just the Princeton network is phenomenal and I think graduating a young alumni I was intimidated to say oh let me go reach out to someone from a class 10 years older than me and and I didn't do a great job doing that Mm because I didn't feel like I had an offer you know, when I would mm-hmm. ask. But now I realize just have those conversations because you don't need to 
talk to someone when you need something. You need to just make that connection. Hey, you're doing something cool. And in five years and 10 years, that's when you kind of come back around and say, actually, maybe I have an offer ask here, an exchange of how we can be helpful together. And I've also found that my friends are sometimes my mentors, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. we're 15 years out. Mm -hmm. Some of them are in awesome places, and they just happen to be in the same hallway of me as a freshman. Uh And now we're friends, and now they're doing something awesome. I just was able to collaborate with one of my friends who's an education PhD. We're working together on the future of a uh, future of work project, excuse me, that um, really looks at how the workforce is changing in cities and how you know self-driving cars is going to impact and displace jobs and what jobs are going to come back in. But I was able to reach into my Princeton network and and make that connection and do a collaboration with actually a former classmate. So yeah. both mentors, you know, and friends. Yeah, and yeah. and yeah, lifting each other is a sen- in a sense. Yes, or educating each other still well Absolutely. beyond the well beyond the campus. Rise together. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Back to the African American Mayors Association. Sure. You mentioned technology and mm-hmm. um, displacing jobs and so on. What are some of the? I, I'm trusting that's a key issue that the organization mm-hmm. is looking at. Um, what, what are some of the other top issues that are on your agenda? Yeah. So overall, I mean, workforce and economic development. Mm-hmm. So beyond just displacement, where are the jobs now? How are we making sure our workforce is prepared? How are we making sure that there's equal wages? Making sure women and men or earn the same amount of money, making sure that women can participate in the workforce, make sure there's paid leave. Um, Again, DC's leading on that issue. there's going to be a paid leave insurance policy um, plan that employers, as an employer, I actually have to be compliant to make sure that my employees know that in 2020, they're going to be able to take paid leave up to eight weeks. I think that's huge. Um, and mayors on the front lines to be able to implement that from a city level. I'm going to jump forward because I wanted to ask this question. Sure. Uh, there's a new mayor in D.C., re- relatively new mayor in D.C., African-American woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think African-American women bring something unique to the table since you brought up paid mm-hmm. leave? Yeah. I'm curious if there's something... You know, we all applaud, of course, all of these milestones. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've also got Lori Lightfoot in, in Chicago, yes. of course. You know, a big applause. But I'm curious what kind of policies we will see that are different and whether you're seeing anything happening there. Yeah, absolutely. Paid leave. Um, paid leave is huge. And for my organization, we've been looking a lot at maternal health. There mm-hmm. are huge disparities around, you know, maternal outcomes. For African-American, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. African-American women. And as a mom and a recent mom, I have a six-month-old. I mean, it's just, you know, despite reading everything and talking to my doctors, I still say, am I going to, you know, be okay? Just because the stats, regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of your education level, black women, Serena Williams, Beyonce had challenges in their uh, birthing experience. We just can't look at um, socioeconomic status and traditional factors are saying there's more black women who are obese or who have diabetes. It's beyond that. And it's a it's a problem that's that local action is needed for, you know, maternal health, prenatal exams, education, and also just retraining of the doctors and talking to communities. And I think that happens locally. That's interesting. And so you, you said People have more difficult birthing experiences, mm-hmm. but the death rate is significantly higher. Yes, absolutely. That, that, that's the number that makes my eyes pop. Absolutely. In a very, you know, in a first-world country with the, in theory, the best medical system that mm-hmm. there is on, available, um, African American women die so much more frequently in childbirth, which yeah. is something I think almost never happens. Absolutely. And again, it's it's not just, and you know, I think it's also changing the conversation from patient victim blaming. It's not again, you're obese. It's not you have diabetes or black women do this or they do that, or they don't exercise. No, it is really, if you parse out and look at the data, it comes down to the way, you know, we're viewed as a patient and how we're unable to advocate for ourselves or that our pain isn't 
taken as seriously as women of other races. And so those are issues my organization has been looking at to just call for community health centers to come together and take action, whether it's a local advisory committee to really um, encourage better outcomes or just having that conversation so that women are empowered with that information when they're talking to their doctors. Yeah. Yeah. What else? What are some of the other top policy issues that you're looking at? We've been really involved in criminal justice reform. For mayors, they really sit at a really interesting crossroads, and for black mayors, right, because police and public safety are such an important municipal function. And yet, we have disparate outcomes when um, there are police involved, you know, shootings, when you're thinking about black victims versus white victims. Um, Is a police officer more likely to de-escalate when they're approaching, uh, you know, a black potential suspect? Or why do they think someone's a suspect? Why do eight-year-old boys uh, look like 13-year-old boys? And all these issues that um, really have to do with training and ways that mayors can influence from their power of convening to have those conversations locally. Mm-hmm. Um, and But they have to sit at the intersection of understanding, you know, mayors have to advocate for public safety. They have to support their police officers. So we are at this interesting crossroads where our organization really shows how we're unique. So we sit where municipal organizations sit and we support our law um, first responders, our, you know, public safety officers, our police, you know, and firefighters. But we also have an eye on these constituents that look like us. Mm-hmm. And if they go to an Airbnb, should they be treated equally, right? And Or fairly, I mean, if you're at a barbecue, so should someone be calling the police on you? Or what are those conversations and how should we be utilizing um, public safe- safety services? There was like a really interesting article this week in New York Times about the use of 911 calls for uh-huh. vermin. For vermin. And it was saying that, you know, as areas gentrify, you're getting an increase in 311 calls to report mice. <laughs> and when they investigated it, it said, well, there's not likely an increase of mice. This is New York City. It's the population who's going to areas who, you know, they're generally not used to seeing mice and rats. Mm-hmm. And also just the construction of new buildings and new condos is disrupting the natural habitat, also increasing the sure. mice population. So yeah. this is like something really random and wonky from a policy perspective on my Google alerts. But I was like, that's actually a really interesting issue because when you're looking at data, 311 calls, what does this information mean to you? And this is another marker of what you know mayors need to think about as communities change and demographics change. Yeah. So yeah. I'm interested that the, so we, 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 t- we can talk about it on a city by city Mm mayor-by-mayor basis, but your organization is all about linking African-American mayors and bringing their, you know, I guess, um, collective expertise together. And tell me more about the mission of the organization and why African-American mayors around the country need a group like like yours. Absolutely. So the question I always get is, how many black mayors are there in America? So there's about 400. I would say the majority skewed to small, smaller cities, a couple hundred in the southeast. But then we also have, you know, Houston and Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago. Mm-hmm. and San Francisco and New Orleans and Atlanta. And so um, the, the population is now um, across the country of black mayors, even in Iowa. Mm-hmm. There is a little bit of a, if you look at our, our um, membership map, there is probably a little bit of a, a thinning out in the Midwest region. Um, but we do make sure that we are still understanding the differences between a rural mayor and a city a city mayor, how their demographics might, you know, their constituents have different needs. How does the mayor of Holly Hill in South Carolina 
to one of my favorite mayors in the country. So I always use him <laughs> as, a, as an example, but uh, like 1,200. And how does Houston, how do they connect? And the answer to that is thinking about issues of equity. There are municipal functions. We want to modernize our services. We want to make sure our workforce is available. We want to make sure our infrastructure is sound. But we also want to make sure these things are deployed in a way that's fair, mm-hmm. that it's there's not redlining where one community doesn't have access. I mean, there's still a digital divide in this country where there are 30 million people that still can't access the internet um, reliably. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean for how they're able to access um, job applications that are now all online? How can they um, access online educational services and health services and get online for healthcare.gov, which is an online application? And so, you know, that is a universal um, charge of our organization to enhance the municipal capacity of all mayors, no matter what their city sizes are, so that we can give them a safe space to really think about issues of equity. Because when we we mention the, you know, historic mayors, Tom Bradley and Mayor Jackson, well, mayors of large cities are now not just mayors of majority black cities. So they have to serve as the chief executive of their, you know, city, but they also are black people. And they've been racially profiled and they're women and they're moms and they bring all these things and experiences to the office. And how do we use those experiences to make a more equitable and inclusive community for communities across the country? One of the other issues Mm -hmm. that I'm curious if your organization is focused on is the the citizenship question on the census. Yes. Because that's going to have a lot of impact on on cities, I think, as well as national politics. Tell yes. me how you're parsing that. Yeah. So, I mean, for us, the question of who's a citizen, who's not a citizen, they're still in the community needing services. And the issue with the citizenship question is, and as we saw in the paper over the last week, that there were potentially some political reasons to use that question, is just people, we are concerned that people are not going to answer. They're not going to open their doors. They don't want to be counted because they don't want to be identified, deported, or all these things that we see going on. But what does that mean? That means your city's going to be undercounted. You're not going to receive the resources you need. Your congressional district may change because your city is undercounted if you have a very diverse and particularly mixed status community. So our organization, you know, we've done press releases. We're going to be participating in a multi-organizational summit in the next few weeks. It's just an important conversation because mayors need to know who are who's in their communities and those people need to be counted and those people need to receive services and so um, we're going to continue to beat the drum we oppose the question the citizenship question on the 2020 census and i think that's consistent with a lot of more civil rights oriented organizations and you're going to continue to see mayors talking about how important this is and how important the census in general everyone needs to be counted for 2020. Yeah. Who do you think looking at, this is perhaps an unfair yeah. question, so you can always punt if <laughs> sure, you need to. Sure. But looking across the country and the landscape of those 400 mayors, of course we have Mayor Pete moving into the national stage. Who do you pick from the, the, the group of African-American mayors that, were gonna, that will someday be national leaders? Or maybe they already are national leaders, but I wonder if they're, who, the, who the bright lights are in the mayoral world. Oh, great. So I'm going to punt on names. Okay. <laughs> but I will, I will say that I am just so inspired by the millennial mayors. Right? right. There is a wave of young, dynamic leaders across the country, whether it's Stockton, St. Paul. I mean, even just the young-ish, mm-hmm. you know, 40s. But there are mayors that are 
29. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm just so inspired by that. They have a, such a bright future and they have extraordinary ideas. They they are, you know, internet natives. They use technology. Sometimes people joke like they're quicker to respond to a DM than they are to an email, right? Uh -huh. Because we're beyond email, right? But uh -huh. you can reach them on Twitter and they yeah. engage with their constituents. You saw even, you know, back when Cory Booker was a mayor, he was responding and going to fires based on, you know, where people were saying, and you know, in their Twitter. And Cory Booker was mayor of Newark, New Jersey. Of Newark, mm -hmm. New Jersey. Right. And so they know, they understand data, they understand how to leverage technology, how to uh, story tell, and to use those stories to bring more resource, uh, resources to their community. So I'm just really inspired by that. And of course, I'm inspired by the wave of women mayors. I mean, we've just had, you know, the last 18 months, there's just been a historic number of black women mayors. And so I'm looking, I have my eye on all of them. Mm -hmm. I hope they see higher office at some point. And so I'm just excited about those two demographics. Yeah, I think the that they're fascinating demographics, mm -hmm. absolutely fascinating. And and what you say about technology is really interesting to me mm -hmm. too, because um, increasing, you know, ur urbanization is a thing that's happening worldwide, mm -hmm. right? right? People are moving to the cities in huge numbers, and uh, you know, the sustainability of the earth is going to be dependent on how well cities yeah. uh, cope with environmental issues. Mm -hmm. I guess I, I look at the future of cities as the future of humanity. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so it's nice to think that they're in good hands. <laughs> yes, yes, they are. I'm so excited. And, and just thinking about the way, you know, technology is disruptive. And with that disruption, we have to be prepared. And I think one thing my organization is just really looking at is making sure that we're at the seat, at the table, talking about the policy before, you know, it's too late, right? Like Ubers come in and then they're too big to sort of regulate and what is this or Airbnb comes in and we're displacing or adjusting housing prices and but it's already there people yeah. are used to it so how do we get in a, you know get ahead of these things and there's a certain education level that mayors have to understand and I think these younger mayors are leading the way and showing some of the more senior mayors how to utilize these tools and leverage them and really understand whether you know you could use a TED talk to communicate to your you know constituency or you know use that tweet use that Instagram story and really understand that messaging and education piece that's just you know new low cost and just a great way to you know really just get out there and get in front of issues I think that's that's fascinating Stephanie yeah. uh, what about you any any plans to run for office anytime in the next 20 years in the next 20 yeah, you may <laughs> see that uh, right now I have two little ones I'm focused on that I mean a lot of all of this is work-life balance and um, I'm focused on them but I, I don't rule it out okay. um, I love the role I'm in and being able to advise a lot of mayors but won't rule out in the future great great <laughs> yeah. Well, we are out of time, so okay. I should uh, close you. this down. But thank you so much, Stephanie Mash-Sykes, for joining us. It's Absolutely. been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. I'd like to also thank Danielle Alio, our producer, and ask all of our listeners to come back again because we have more uh, really interesting uh, alumni of Princeton University to talk to. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.